Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. And I'm your host, Anna Kuzman. But first, a quick word from what some might call our sponsors. The National Drug Court Resource Center, also known as NDCRC, is housed in the Justice Programs Office, a center in the School of Public Affairs at American University. JPO provides research, technical assistance, training, program evaluation, and capacity building services to jurisdictions, organizations, and government agencies throughout the U.S. and internationally. The National Drug Court Resource Center is part of the Bureau of Justice Assistance at U.S. Department of Justice's Drug Court Initiative. NDCRC is the go-to place for drug court practitioners to access a wide variety of resources to make their programs as effective as possible. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or the Department of Justice. So what is your name and your position within the drug court team? My name is Jeff Falk, and I, for the last three years, have been the counselor assigned to adult treatment court in Cascade County. I know you have a really interesting background in how you ended up in that position, so would you be able to share a little bit about your story and how you got here? I actually was in law enforcement for approximately 20 years. I was an immigration officer with the Department of Justice for about four years, and then I spent a little over 15 years with sheriff's office in Montana, where I was actually under sheriff. I ended up in the hospital. I had two procedures for sinus surgery done, and that was probably around 2000 and 2004. I was given opiates, as usually after treatment, people are prescribed painkillers. And that was the first time I was introduced to opiates. My addiction kind of, it developed. It was a process. I started to use opiates. First, it started off legally as they were prescribed by the doctor. But once I started abusing them, it progressed into a physical and a psychological addiction. So, and that lasted up until October 4th of 2010. And I was an active addiction, probably about four or five years, somewhere in there. The thing is, is I was preparing myself actually for an addiction way before I was introduced, just because a lot of stuff that was going on in my life. I've had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and but there's been other, other things that also contributed to me latching on to an opiate because it, in the beginning, made everything better for me. And so in the beginning, it helped me escape a lot of my pressures and my depression and anxiety and all that stuff that I was dealing with. But I wasn't taking care of myself and I was making some poor decisions, thinking I was in control and... And it really didn't matter that I was in denial for a long time and I was arresting people for the very thing I was doing on a daily basis. But I would often try to separate myself from them because I never was an IV user or I never snorted, crushed the pill and snorted it. I just took it how you're supposed to take it. And that was kind of how I justified and separated myself from the actual addict when, you know, truth be told, I was just as much as an addict as everybody who is in addiction. There was no difference. So, And so how did you transition into your role as a counselor at Gateway? 
from your own recovery to this position? So I ended up being criminally charged. I was charged with felony burglary. The very night I actually was caught in a person's house on duty. And my intentions were I was looking for drugs and I had entered the house and I certainly wasn't in the right state of mind, but I had run out of the opiates and I was in withdrawals and all I could think about was getting something to ease my pain. And and the homeowner came home and I ended up being confronted by the homeowner and it just kind of crescendoed from there and ended up calling the sheriff and the county attorney and uh, that night, a couple of my deputies actually ended up, because I was suicidal too that evening, and I ended up being taken by two of my deputies to a uh, treatment center. It wasn't long-term, it was short-term in Kalispell, Montana, where I spent, I don't know, four days before, and I was still in a lot of denial about the severity, and I still had this this delusion that I was going to fix all of this, but... My wife had told me that I couldn't come home until I got the treatment I needed. And, of course, I was pretty angry about that. And, but eventually I agreed to go to a, a treatment program in Billings, Montana. I was there I, from the time I went in on October 4th to the time I got out was approximately 40 days. I faced some criminal charges, which ended up being reduced to misdemeanor, which I was very thankful for. I began my own recovery program, uh, going to AA support group meetings, getting my own counseling, and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life because I just everything I knew my life to be was just destroyed. I didn't know I was going to take care of my family. I didn't know if I was going to prison. I didn't know if my wife was going to leave me or if I was going to lose my kids, just everything that goes along with addiction. With the support of my family, I made the decision to go back to college at 42 years old, which was a really kind of a scary experience for me. But I wanted to become an addictions counselor. And uh, I went to the University of Great Falls and their addictions program. And I am getting my degree. And from there, I was accepted into an internship at Rocky Mountain Treatment Center in Great Falls. And from there, they offered me a job. And I began taking on a caseload there. I was there for about three years. And I went to work for Gateway, where I am now. Probably wasn't with Gateway more than four weeks. And they came to me and they asked me if I'd be interested in being the treatment court counselor which I wasn't real excited about because I was still dealing with a lot of my baggage and garbage and resentments towards law enforcement because I was looking to blame something or somebody still for my addiction and what had happened to me. I had harbored some feelings about that law enforcement didn't take care of me, that when I fell apart, everybody kind of distanced themselves from me, which... You know, it wasn't anybody else. It was my responsibility and the choices that I made. But I still had this resentment towards any type of law enforcement entity. And so when they came and they asked me to do treatment court, it was like, that's the last thing I want to do. But it was important for me. You know, I took some time to reflect on it and I prayed about it. And I came, I guess, to the realization that it was this was an opportunity for me 
actually to be able to sit on a treatment team. And I offered a very uh, a unique perspective because I could offer the law enforcement perspective, the counselor perspective, and an individual who has struggled with addiction themselves. So yeah, and then it's been about three years since I've been in treatment court and uh, being the primary counselor for treatment court, adult treatment court participants. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. I think that's really powerful. And you said it best yourself that you can speak from so many different lenses. And I think that really highlights, you know, a lot of what treatment courts are trying to do is Mm -hmm. gauge the intersection between the criminal justice system and substance use Mm -hmm. and mental health. Mm -hmm. Depending on our influences and our environments, we become kind of creatures of our environment. And so we latch on to certain ideas and mentalities. And, you know, certainly as I spent so many years in law enforcement, I was a very black and white moral modality thinker. And, you know, honestly, if you would have talked to me 10 years ago, I would have told you the answer to the drug issues in this country, build more prisons and hire more officers. That would have been my answer, and I would have fought you tooth and nail to make you believe that, too, because I'm an expert. I was a cop, and I couldn't be more wrong. Certainly, I mean, we have to have laws in place that regulate this stuff, and there needs to be uh, uh, some punitive punishments, I guess, uh, you know, in certain situations. However, that doesn't work. And if people take a step back and look at it, our, our jails are full, our prisons are full, and the majority of those individuals, it's for drug charges. And uh, even as an officer, I can tell you 90% of the people I arrested, drugs or alcohol were involved somehow. And the answer isn't just thinking that if you put laws into effect, this addiction problem is going to go away or resolve itself, because this is a societal problem. This is a mental health crisis. This is a medical crisis in our country. And a lot of people get excited sometimes when they just talk about, uh, and I don't want to get into the debate of addiction being a disease or just a bad decision maker, but if you take the time to research it and understand, I think there's no doubt that in the beginning of everybody's addiction, there's just some outright poor bad, terrible decisions that are made by the individual, you know, and I'm as much as guilty of that as anybody. However, once it takes hold, an individual has to be treated appropriately to learn how, because the brain changes. You don't think normally. Like I said, I was uh, in law enforcement for 20 years and I stand in the middle of somebody's living room thinking about getting a hold of some drugs. That's not rational behavior, rational thinking. That's certainly not who I am. But I was responsible for that, and I had to pay the consequences for it. So, Can you share a little bit about how you think your own thinking has changed from your former role in law enforcement to your role as a treatment counselor? Mm. How long can this interview be? As long as you want. <laughs> yes. I have. I will say that a lot of your team members have been like, you need to talk to Jeff because I'm really interested in people who were once anti-use of medication-assisted treatment mm-hmm. and are now all for it. Yeah. I mean, I can start with talking about medically-assisted Yeah, treatment. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Okay. So as a counselor and as a law enforcement officer, 
some of the problems that we're going to face in society, which people I don't think fully understand, is when you sh when we do shut off the pharmaceuticals, we strengthen the laws of the pharmaceuticals, and in which we are. I mean, there are some much better laws going to place, much better accounting for individual providers prescribing and stuff like that. But what will end up happening is, and we're already seeing it certainly here, is an increase in heroin. So when you're talking about opiates, if it's, a, it's supply and demand, the demand is a long ways from ever going away in this country. And if there's a demand for it, there are going to be people who want to make money and are going to supply it. And so now we're seeing an increase in heroin, which is very dangerous, obviously. At least with pharmaceuticals, they could gauge how much they were taking. With the heroin, they have no idea the strength. Right. They have no idea how much fentanyl, carfentanyl nope. is mixed in with the nope. normal heroin. And, of course, we're seeing a lot of overdoses mm -hmm. beginning to take place. And so that's just, unfortunately, the transition that we're going to see take place within our country and within our towns and our cities. But medically-assisted treatment, I think that when I first began to see people, they would come in and they would talk about the buprenorphine that they were abusing, that they were shooting up, that because it was more readily available. As we've clamped down on certain pharmaceuticals like the oxycodones and the Percocets and stuff like that, that but the Suboxone clinics have popped up all over the place. And so now you've got a supply of Suboxone within our society, and it makes its way to the streets. And so people, if they can get their hands on that, they will and they do. So the initial patients that I began seeing, a lot of them were reporting, man, my addiction to Suboxone is horrible. The coming off of Suboxone is worse than coming off of heroin. And so they would share all these things as a counselor to me. And I'd say, oh, man, it's just like trading one addiction for another. How can you tell me that Suboxone or Buprenorphine is medication that can be helpful to the addict? You know, it's all about greed and just these machines wanting to make money and the legalized drug dealing. And so those were some of my thought processes on it. So part of change in us is to get rid of some of our pride and to to be a critical thinker and to be more open to listening to alternative ideas. And I was so set in my thought process and my mentality because of my, I guess, my personal experience. But the bottom line, I was ignorant. I didn't have the education. I didn't understand it, yet I was passing judgment on it, making decisions when I was uneducated. And I was a big Vivitrol fan, which is the injectable naltrexone. And I think Vivitrol is a wonderful medication, which people get injections of Vivitrol once a month, and it's an opiate blocker. So if people use an opiate, or it's also used for alcoholics, they don't get the effects, the euphoric effects. So we find that that has been tremendously successful in a lot of people that, a lot of my patients that I've seen. However, what I've come to see is buprenorphine is an appropriate medication and can be very effective for people learning how to live life in recovery. And so you get some arguments with people who say, well, you're on Suboxone, you're not in recovery, and that's not what recovery means. Recovery is based on how are you living your life? Are you holding a job? Are you developing 
in repairing relationships in your life? Do you have healthy relationships? Do you have stable housing? Are you out on the street robbing people to buy your drugs? Or are you a productive member of society contributing? You're going to a job every morning. You know, you're taking care of your kids and you're living up, I guess, to your societal obligations in a healthy way. And I've watched buprenorphine allow people to do that. There are some people that, you know, and I don't fully understand uh, all the science and physiology behind the medication. I'm not a doctor or scientist, but I do believe that there are some people that their addictions are so severe that they literally may require to be on a medication like Subox and the rest of their life just so they can function as a normal human being. So I don't believe in the Suboxone clinics that just pop up and you go in, write them a medication and say, here, this is going to fix your problems because you're not dealing with the core issues of what also contribute to the problems in that individual's life. They need to learn healthy coping skills. They need to learn how to identify their thinking errors to live a healthier life. And so I think it's critical and I, because I've seen, we work with a doctor here in Great Falls who is awesome. She works with us, you know, and they, they are basically told you can't receive your suboxone unless you're engaged in some sort of outside support, such as through therapy and support group meetings, stuff like that. And when we, what I have seen in the combination of appropriate therapy and ongoing treatment you know, with the combination between that and the medication, seen tremendous, tremendous restoration of people's lives. So I'm a big fan of medically assisted treatment. I don't think it, I think of it more as, and of course a lot of people would argue this, I make a comparison with a the diabetic. They need their, their medication to stay well, and if they don't, they die. And when it's appropriately done and responsibly done, this is the medication that some individuals may need so they can stay healthy as well. I want to thank the Cascade County Drug Court team, specifically Michelle Copney and Jeff Falk, for sharing their thoughts and stories. You can download the episodes from this podcast series through the iTunes podcast store or on ndcrc.org. Just search NDCRC in the podcast store. I also want to encourage you to check out the National Drug Court Resource Center website at ndcrc.org if you are looking for any resources or information on problem-solving courts. We have an extensive clearinghouse of research pieces and operational documents for practitioners working in problem-solving courts. We also have an interactive map and database of all operational drug courts in the country. If you work in a juvenile drug treatment court, please check out our website at au-jdtc.org. The Resource Center is funded in part through a grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Office of Justice Programs, U.S. Department of Justice. Neither the U.S. Department of Justice nor any of its components operate, control, are responsible for, or necessarily endorse this podcast or the NDCRC website, including, without limitation, its content, technical infrastructure, and policies, and any services or tools provided. Podcast artwork, mixing, and editing by me, Anna Kuzman. Original music by Peter Grusser, titled Skipping in the No Standing Zone.